Well, I'm going to talk for about another 45 minutes or so because I guess uh, they, they, don't, they don't invite me back to camp anymore. Maybe that's why I was just... <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a kid's room if it's like more exciting for you, Trev, if you want to go. There. Okay, good. You're hanging out with me. Hey, in 2008, there's this interesting book. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. it it's called Not Quite What I Was Planning. And it's, it's basically six-word memoirs and some of them are posed in the form of questions some of them are posed in the form of six adjectives but it's these windows into humanity these windows that are really revealing into people's lives and you start to get a glimpse like wow and i these weren't necessarily even submitted like anonymously but i don't know if you had to if given the time uh, summarize your life in six words. Kind of a challenge, feels a little daunting, but I gotta tell you, I've done this a couple of times, the more you get on it, you kinda get on a roll. And then when you start thinking in terms of six lines, you're like, you're just counting it off. But here's a few of them, just to give you an idea. So um, one, guy's, one guy said it this way, sweet wife, good sons, I'm rich. Ladies, a sundress will solve life's woes. Amen? Amen? Uh, carbohydrates call my name every day. <laughs> Never really finished anything except cake. I, I mean, that's an amen for me. I, I, I'm, a, um, uh, I'm just here for the beer. <laughs> I I think, therefore, I am bald. Uh, did I miss a deadline again? <laughs> Here's one. Never should have bought that ring. Oh. Won the fight, lost the girl. All of a sudden, you start to say, cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. Many risky mistakes, very few regrets. My daughter's baby, inconvenient and incredible. Must remember, people, gadgets, that order. It was worth it, I think. Kind of a fun exercise when you start to go, if I've got six words to give a commentary, a window, uh, some kind of autobiographical data about my life, what would you say? The reason I bring that up is for the last few months this summer, we've been going through this series called The Theology of Plan B, finding God in unexpected places, in unexpected ways. And there is this plan that you and I might have for our life, but it doesn't ever seem like God is in step with us, which is a funny thing to think that the God of the universe should somehow keep up with me. But I would confess to having some misgivings, some unmet expectations, some mm, feeling underwhelmed because I don't always get to see what God is actually doing in the moment. And what we've looked at is Genesis 37, through 50, and it's the arc of Joseph's life. And Joseph 
was this guy who from an early age, a teenage age, he got a dream and he was promised that everyone's going to bow down to him. So as an immature teenager, he goes to all of his brothers, of which they were all older, and he goes, guys, guess what? You're all going to bow down to me. Well, that's like saying you're going to steal my inheritance because there was a pecking order and it started at the oldest and worked its way down. And here he is going, what? Is that, is that, should I not have said that? Is that bad? Um, so they were already jealous of him because he was Jacob's favorite son. So he, there was already issues. Well, so here he goes and he gets sold into slavery as an act of grace because they really wanted to kill him. One guy speaks up and goes, now let's just sell him into slavery and say he's dead. Well, then he moves in. This is a guy who's living with this promise, this idea that God will bless him. Do you believe your life that God is for you? Do you believe that God sees? Do you believe that God is, is working for your good? And then you have this problem where things aren't working out. So he ends up down in Egypt and he's sold into slavery and he ends up in Potiphar's house, of which he ascends to this great status where he's calling the shots. I mean, Potiphar was the chief uh, of the whole commander of the Egyptian army. I mean, this guy's got clout and he's got resource and he's like his right-hand man, except that he gets falsely accused of sexual assault because his wife tries to seduce him and Joseph's not having it. Well, now he's in prison. He's imprisoned and he's still faithful. And while he's in prison, he's discerning and he discerns this dream and then he becomes forgotten in prison when the guy gets out. Finally, he interprets the dream eventually of Pharaoh and then he ascends to the second in command of the, of the global military superpower at the time. So does this start to feel a little bit like your life? Maybe not like the level of status, but kind of two steps forward, one step back. Yes, God, you're with me. Where are you lately? Not quite what I imagined. Not quite what I would have planned. There is this idea that once we realize God's on our side, things are going to start falling into place, and they don't. So here we come to the very end of Genesis, the end of Joseph's life, Genesis chapter 50, and we read this seminal verse, this hingepin verse that really is the summary of Joseph's entire life. And we've been looking at him for about eight weeks now, but he comes to his brothers, his father Jacob, you know, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of the patriarchs of which they're going to build, a, 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 you're going to be like a, a son of many nations. There, there, there's going to be like, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Except that this is a really dysfunctional, flawed family. And here they get to it. And, and Joseph's kind of come full circle. Not because he's seen God in every instant. Like all of us, I think he's a little short-sighted and going, how could God be in this? But what he does with great wisdom is he begins to see God in the sequence of his life. It's really hard to find God in the here and now. I'll be honest. Is this the right thing or is this the wrong thing? God, is this a yes? Is this a no? But what I can do is start to trace the trajectory of God's provision, God's faithfulness, God's... Um, uh, the experiences that I've gone through, and I can see the arc of what God's been doing all along. So it was never plan A for me to start a church 
two years before my oldest son went to college. But five years ago, that's what we did. I never felt like I was supposed to be a senior pastor, and I never felt called to start a church. I did feel called to help people have a more transformational experience with a personal and a living faith. I wanted to make disciples. And if it took having a blank canvas called the church, okay, I'll do it. I never thought I would do what I'm doing now. And to start from scratch when you're 45 years old and you're like, yeah, let, well, why not? We, we have no college savings, but let's figure it out. <laughs> Welcome to the theology of plan B and the ability to just trust God with every step. But you know what helped me make that next step? That really hard next step was that I looked over my shoulder and I looked over the last 15 and 20 years of what God had been doing in shaping my life involving people with it, gifting me and saying, okay, Lord, I'll say yes. And so I think that's what Joseph does. And now that his dad is dying, his brothers are worried because he's played nice, kind of like I'll act nice to you as long as dad's around, but now dad's gone. It's sort of like when the teacher leaves the room and all the kids are like, ha, 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 we have no authority figure. We can like wreak havoc and it's chaos brothers are worried. They're like, oh no, he's going to remember us. This is when everything hits the fan. And then he says these words to his brothers. He gives them a pass. Whatever resentment was in his heart, whatever offense he had kept, because they sold him for dead, off into slavery. Oh, bros, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. How do you have that perspective when you've been so mistreated? How do you have that perspective when you have resentment in your heart? You don't. And so in this moment, when he ascended, he was the one that delivered all of Egyptian and all the Israelites who were living in the promised land from a worldwide famine because he had this unusual organizational skills. And for seven years, he stockpiled grain and provision so that when the seven years of severe drought came, no one suffered or went hungry. He sees what God's been doing all along. And what he realizes is that even though God's been with him, he didn't always get his way. Even though God's been with him, it felt like plan B. Did God intend for him to get falsely accused of sexual assault? No. Did, did he intend for him to go get in, sold into slavery? No. Did he intend for him to go into prison and get forgotten? No, no, no. And I would say the same thing to you. God sees. God is present. God is with you. And whatever mountain you feel like you're trying to ascend, he's with you. And what now he's seeing at the end of his life is how God is using him despite all of the challenges. Everyone's fed and many people are, saved, are being saved. He gets it. He gets it. And this is what comes with the kind of wisdom that we only learn through struggle, through loss, and through suffering. And yet most of my life, I try and choose the path of least resistance. <laughs> I want to avoid anything. I choose easy over hard. 
but God meets us in the hard. And so I just want to spend a few minutes talking about kind of these three points. And the first thing he comes out and says is, you intended for harm. And, 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 and I would just say it this way. Some things are done to us. And some th other things are just done, but they're not personal. It is very easy for us to take the bait of Satan and hold grudges, to, to take up an offense, to be resentful. Let me just remind us, some things are done to us. I get that. We get fired. We get broken up with. We get left. We get abandoned. There's, there's bad stuff that happens to us. But some bad stuff just is done and is never meant to be personal. I think a lot of things, a lot of the offenses that most of us carry around are things that are done without any malice or without any intention of wrongdoing. It's just blindsided people who don't realize how hurtful what they said is or their actions were. But meanwhile, we've tucked it in our heart. And we believe that somehow you intended this for harm. And so I think a lot of things and, and I, that the world might intend for harm, God can use for good. There are things we might not ever want to go through again, but now only looking back, we can see God as a healer and a redeemer. We can see God in the midst of dark places. And so I would challenge you to hold loosely the things that you believe were done or intended to bring harm. Whether they were or whether they weren't, God can redeem. God is a God of hope. The second thing he says is he says, but it intended for the good, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. In other words, many people are being blessed despite his brother's efforts to get rid of them. And so God is sovereign. That's a big spiritual word. Let me break it down. God remains in control. God remains unfazed, unsurprised, even when we feel out of control. That's who God is. When we get overwhelmed, God's still on his throne. The second thing is God is always hope. So if God is sovereign, he's never out of control. God is hope, which means whatever thing we're going through is not the final word. Redemption is within reach. Healing is within reach. Restoration is within reach. And so there's this beautiful picture when we walk in relationship with God and the only way that we're going to grow is when we hammer out on this anvil, like a blacksmith's anvil, our, 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 is where it hammers out our love and our trust for God. And that's what God, I think, is doing. Now, there is this passage that comes to us that might be familiar out of uh, Jesus' teaching. It's John chapter 15. He talks about the vine and the branches. Let me just read this for you. You might have it. Uh, I don't think it's on the screen, but he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He who cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will remain even more fruitful. Did you catch that? There's two kinds of branches, some that doesn't bear fruit and they're cut off. And then there's some kinds of branches that do bear fruit. And what happens to them? They're cut as well. Everything in life needs pruning, but for different reasons. 
So there are things about our life that need to be trimmed and cut back. And God wants to prune the less than fruitful areas of our lives. Why? Not to let it burn in hell. So that there could be another chance. God is not in the business of judgment with no hope for eternity. God is in the business of second chances. And then he looks at the faithful servant and in the faithful branch that is bearing fruit and he has to prune it anyway. And you're like, my life's going good. I'm honoring you. I'm faithful. I'm like the elder son in the story of the prodigal son. I've been here. And our lives need to be pruned too. Why? If we're going to keep producing. You ever work with, you ever work with roses? If you don't want an ugly rose bush, you better prune it this year. And that's the story of these ruin. And so we have this picture that, that God, what God intended for good to accomplish is now being done. But sometimes we look at the pruning in our life and we hold God in contempt. Like, why are you holding me back? Why aren't you giving my eye? My heart and my desires are good. All I'm saying is pruning is a necessary part of any transformational experience. And it will be anything but like it was, but it can be far Far greater. So the branch that bears no fruit is cut off so that another can grow. But the branch that does bear fruit, where the life of Jesus has touched the life of another through you, should also happen again. So the church is supposed to bear fruit. The church, though, has actually been in decline for the last 25 to 30 years. And now when we go through COVID, we have lost roughly, and, and this is kind of an aggregate number. I've been reading and studying and listening to this. We're seeing these, these statistics that now that we're kind of reemerging, we figured out how to do protocols and we know how to gather safely and, and do the things that we do. Do you know that the church has not only been in decline for 25 or 30 years, the church post-COVID is now returning at roughly 60% of pre-COVID numbers. In other words, over the last year and a half, people have largely, and these are churchgoers. These are not like just Christmas and Easter people. These are regular churchgoers who would call themselves followers of Christ, have basically said, I've lost my standing appointment with, with God and his community of faith. So where is the primary expression now? And what I'm saying is God is doing a pruning work on his church. Or maybe another way to say it is, I believe the church is being refined. There has been so much consumer Christianity where people show up at their leisure, at their convenience, and consume a lot of religious goods and services, which isn't bad. But really what that model does is produce spiritual consumers, not disciples. And for the last 30 years, what the church has been measuring as far as success is attenders, but not apprentices of Jesus. And we're invited to be so much more than programmatic followers. We're invited to these formational practices where we experience a living faith. And so, yes, I'm really discouraged where the church is at. And yes, I'm really tired and feel like I thought Mission Hills would be further along. But I can tell you right now that God has given me such a conviction that the kind of church we're experimenting with 
is the kind of church we need. We don't need one more megachurch, and we don't need more something for everyone platform. What we need are people to know how to live, work out a living faith. And so we crafted these rhythms so that we could practice them, whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered. That once a month, we can go out as tribes and as a church, and we can go have a lab. If you missed our last lab, holy cow, was that not beautiful? I think one of the biggest testimonies to me, we, we, we hosted a lab at the Steiner Ranch dock. And, and we had a foster group home because we said hospitality is one of the ways we express our faith. We need to be intentional about making room for new faces. Secondly, we want to practice compassion because we're all needy and compassion is simply seeing needs as other people's needs as different than my own. And so we bring this group home of foster kids and they were like from like six to 16, but you've got these teenagers, teenage boys who were giddy at the thought of a slip and slide and going behind on a two because why? They'd never been on a boat before. I'm so glad we came. I mean, this is what they're gushing with enthusiasm. And it's sort of like our own teenagers are like, I've been, been here, done that. It's sort of like another day at the lake. But to these guys, they've never been. It, it was the equivalent of going to Six Flags, like a roller coaster ride. But they got to get behind a boat. And I'm like, this, this is what it looks like. All of a sudden, this Sunday school class became a laboratory and we got to experiment with God's unconditional love. And guess who got blessed? You and I. It, 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 was, it was picture perfect. It was as hoped. Nothing I could have preached that morning would have been so meaningful. And I'm like, we've got to think about doing church differently. And so, yes, is, is there... Is there a lot of things that the world intends for harm? Did God intend for COVID? No, but can God redeem COVID? Yeah. Did God intend for us all to quarantine and lose our standing appointment with faith and community? No. Can God redeem that? And it's going to go through a period of refinement. I think God is pruning his church. And we get to be at a part of something new. Lastly, he just talks about the saving of many lives. He starts to look around and he goes, I see what was happening. And just in small measure, we see Damaris threw together a, a, a summer camp thing and we're seeing people take next steps in their faith. And we need to all be thinking about not going from A to Q, we're just going from A to B, B to C, and the invitation of Jesus is always to a next step. Now, Jason, Joseph saved lives because it was being pruned. Jo Joseph's life became a savior through this severe famine, and his faithfulness and obedience didn't actually avoid the famine. It, it, it didn't make him like have to not go through it, but God was with him through the famine, and he saved all the people's lives. So you can see who gets the credit, right? So I came up with a few six words. I was thinking about Joseph, and this is where I kind of got into it. Like if I had to sort of six-word memoirs of Joseph's life. Joseph, promised, enslaved, imprisoned, pardoned, provider. Joseph grew up the hard way. Took his lumps, never lost hope. Wouldn't carry a grudge against brothers. 
favored son, despised brother, overcame famine. What would be your story? What would be your commentary if you had to start to summarize your faith journey? I read a few more that maybe might sound autobiographical for you, but I thought they were interesting from this book. Tragic childhood can lead to wisdom. Extremely responsible, secretly longed for spontaneity. Nothing profound, I just sat around. Creative and destructive in many ways. Alive at 38 feels like 83. Life goal, maximum results, minimal effort. My life's a bunch of almosts. I hope to outlive my regrets. I recognize red flags faster now. I was lost, but now found. I was blind, but now see. New life within reach in Christ. I would love for you to just consider the ways in which God might be speaking to you. Maybe there's something that needs to be pruned. Maybe there's, there's something that needs to be surrendered. Maybe there's something that needs to be forgiven. Maybe there's something that needs to be let go of. But what I'm saying is we've been created to bear much fruit. And even though this season of life feels less than fruitful. It feels like we've been holed up. It feels like we lost touch with a community of faith. It feels like there's so many struggles going on in the world today. And I'm saying, let God be present in all of them. So I came up with a few more six words as I think about us in Mission Hills. New time, new venue, new schedule. Find your tribe, love them hard. Let's make practice the new deep. In covenant with Jesus at Mission Hills, one word. Church as lab, faith needs practice. Maybe that's something you want to play with. You can make that your little drive home banter and talk about what God's doing. But can I pray with you as we close in this time of worship? Our Father in heaven, I thank you that you are writing a story and, and wherever we're at in that story, there's always room for redemption because you are a God of hope. I thank you that you still are on your throne even when we feel out of control. I thank you that, that um, you have brought us to this time and this place. And even though every church seems to be struggling, even though it feels like people have just disseminated, even though people have just peeled off, I pray that you would raise up a mighty armor army who would stand in the gap for those who cannot and will not pray for themselves. I pray that the testimony, the witness of Mission Hills Church would be that we would bear great fruit, not by the size, but by the impact, not by the volume of people 
but by the generosity of the saints. Because of our, our relentless hospitality and the, and the willingness to cross social divides and love our neighbors who are beyond our block, I pray that you would raise up a, a spiritual army who would be able to go forth and work out a living faith beyond just a Sunday go to church faith. Lord, I pray that you would breathe new life into this church, breathe new life into your church. But will you do your refining work in us so that we can be transformed into your image? Help us to have the kind of vision and insight and wisdom to see what you've been doing all along because we believe that you've been present all along. And we give you praise for that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.